0: This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804 754 1988. And now, with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. For 20 years on my law office wall, from the uh, exiting from the entrance and waiting room to my office, was a beautiful plaque with these words taken right from the Bible. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly? Now, that's a tall order for lawyers. And as you know, I practiced law for 20 years as a trial attorney, doing mostly civil cases there in Southern California from 1975 through 1994. Today on Viewpoint, we're going to bring on the other side of the legal system. We're going to bring on an attorney, a veteran attorney from California who has done primarily criminal Practice criminal practice now some people might say well, how can you represent a criminal? Well, it's interesting because if you go back to uh, Many many years to one of the uh, as I recall one of those testings of one of our Presidents, you know how they get tested with impeachment and So Sam Irwin a lawyer was asked. Well, how could you represent a criminal How could you represent somebody who was guilty? And Sam Irwin responded, uh, basically saying that we're all guilty before God. Every one of us is guilty before God. And we're all going to have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, if we're in right relationship with him. I thought it was a great uh, response from Sam Irwin. Uh, Today on Viewpoint, our uh, special guest, Philip Dunn, who has been practicing now uh, he says he's gotten it almost right out there in ventura california for thirty seven years and he has been trying to implement justice i was trying to implement justice in the context of the civil courts we're gonna have to try to figure out what the difference is between those courts but the reality is friends that just because a court is supposed to deliver justice doesn't mean that it does You know why that is? Because it's made up of people like you and me and our guest today. Imperfect people. People who are sinners, some of whom have been saved by grace, and others who have not. Oh, I received my sure not-so-just desserts a few times there in the law practice. In fact, in Southern California, just 25 miles from where our special guest today practices, I went for a family law case and uh, it was in the famous city of Santa Barbara. Not a large community and the case was actually quite uh, clear, clear cut and uh, so I presented the case and lo and behold, the judge ruled summarily against me and against my client. There was a kind of a deep breath of sort of a a horror that swept the uh, courtroom as lawyers watched what took place. As I walked out of that courtroom, a couple of lawyers came by and said, Mr. Chris Meyer, you just got hometowned. You just got hometowned. Well, it's a phrase that means if you're not part of the hometown, you don't get justice. That's basically what it means because the the court is likely to rule in the favor of those that are part of the hometown. You didn't know that, did you, my friends? But, unfortunately, it's an illustration of the fact that there's only one who actually delivers total justice, and that's God, whose very character is just. But today on Viewpoint, our special guest, Philip Dunn from Ventura, California, joining us with his book Eternal Justice. Now, that's interesting. How is a criminal lawyer or a lawyer who represents criminals going to tell us about eternal justice? Well, it may surprise you what he has to say. Philip, it's good to have you in the program.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: <clears throat> well, it's been a long time. Uh my wife and I have spent quite a bit of time there in Ventura. We actually owned a timeshare there for 35 years and, uh, right there out there on the point. And, uh, it's, it's a beautiful place there.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, got the beaches and some of the most temperate weather in the world. I love it.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. And, uh, so, when did you actually pass the bar and uh, get become operative in the criminal law practice?
1: 1983.
0: All right. So that was, uh, let's see, I came in at 75, so that would have been, uh, well, I was a little bit ahead of you, but you've got 37 years in, and that's uh, amazing. All in the criminal practice, is that correct? I uh,
1: I've done... My share of civil litigation, uh, I did a fair amount of personal injury, mm-hmm. tried three personal injury cases in my time, but, you know, probably done close to a hundred jury trials, the rest of them being all criminal cases.
0: Well, you have certainly had a, a lot of experience. And uh, why in the world, though, would you, as a as an attorney, write a book about eternal justice? I thought you were just in, involved in getting justice for your client right then, or at least getting him off the hook. That's how most people think of a criminal attorney.
1: Well, just getting them off the hook may not be justice. So.
0: Well, the client you know, the may think justice. it's justice, but maybe it's better called mercy, huh? Well, yeah.
1: So that's, that, that's the, uh, The foundation of my practice as a criminal defense attorney and you know I started out as a deputy public defender Mm -hmm. in Ventura County I didn't want to be a public defender I wanted to be a prosecutor and I had gotten an interview with the Ventura DA's office which was my dream job but before going to that interview I got on my knees and prayed not my will, but your will be done. And I did that interview and it went well, but they said it'd be four months before they gone through the whole process. And I needed a job right away at a mm-hmm. six month old baby. And so I went downstairs to the public defender's office because it paid the same. The next thing I knew I was in the public defender's office, a man by the name of Richard Irwin. And he just looked at me and said, What makes you think you could be a trial attorney, boy? And I said, (laughs) well, you know, I just want to try cases to your jurors. And we talked a a little bit longer, but not very long. And I went home and told my wife, Rose, about the DA interview. And the phone rang, and it was Mr. Irwin's secretary. And she said, hold on for Mr. Irwin. And he got on the phone, and he said, young man, if you want a job, up tomorrow at 8 15 in the morning that's when the doors open
0: well it's interesting most of the programs on television are featuring prosecutors and not just uh and, and not public defenders so at least you get a little bit more notoriety that way perhaps uh we're going to talk about uh, some of the clients the kind of things that you and i have faced with regard to the issue of justice especially from god's viewpoint we'll be right back Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Crismar. If God is just, then, and he expects us to follow the ways of Christ who is just, how are you and I to be just? How are we to understand the nature of justice? Is to be just the same as doing justice? Well, it's interesting because I took a couple of minutes to Google this whole thing about justice. It was quite fascinating. According to Wikipedia, justice is a proper harmonious relationship between the warring parts of the person or city. That was Plato's definition. Another says, the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited positions another says justice is the quality of being just righteousness equitableness or moral rightness to uphold the just position of a cause and so another writes fairness is the in the in the way people are dealt with is actually what justice means that comes from the cambridge english dictionary So you notice that there are a variety of ways that justice is defined or expressed. So I ask a rhetorical question of you, our listeners out there today, what do you think justice is? Has there been a time in your life when you know that you received justice? Has there been a time in your life when you didn't think that you received justice? Has there been a time in your life when you became angry because you felt like you did not receive justice? And by the way, if God is just and he hates sin and the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, what if you don't? Are you unjust, unjust from God's viewpoint? And when Amos the prophet says, lest justice roll down as a mighty stream, which is quoted so often by the black community with regard to uh, various kinds of racial issues and integration and so on, how are we to understand these various ideas of justice? And what does justice have to do with mercy? Sometimes I think we get confused between the word justice and mercy, just like we get confused between the word grace and and mercy, and words matter. Words matter to lawyers because that's the, those are the tools we have to deal with. So, Philip, as you're joining us here today concerning your book, Eternal Justice, in what way do words matter here? Because we're in a, in a time, a perilous time in our country, when almost every meaningful word in the language is being redefined.
2: Yeah,
1: it is a perilous time. And, you know, we've seen other perilous times in great divisions. We had a civil war over a, an enormous moral conflict known as slavery. And justice is often in the eye of the beholder. And yes. Yet, <laughs> and yet, you know, the criminal justice system, we'll talk about that more specifically, has an enormous responsibility in society. And over the course of my career, a growing and increasingly burdensome uh, role to play in society in which all of the societal problems go through its door. And, you know, we're talking millions and millions of people and, you know, increasingly complex crimes, and, you know, you look at the penal code, you know, and look at it here in my office, and in, in California, you know, it's thousands, thousands of, you know, penal statutes for which you can go to jail or prison. And so, you know, how is it that uh, society is able to maintain order to function, you know, when it basic cultural and common threads of moral understanding, which in this nation came from a Judeo-Christian background.
2: Well, the
0: more we have defied the laws of God, the more we have increased the laws of men, would you not say? Correct.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's just to maintain order because there's no longer a common understanding.
0: That's why a former lawyer by the name of John Adams... Uh, wrote that our government was made for a moral and religious or christian people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other
1: yeah and that's increasingly what we're doing in this in this country is and we've done for a long time now in a lot of parts of the country what we're starting to do is to say well that which is morally destructive to society we're just not going to call it a crime anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's the movement of, you know, uh, decriminalizing drug offenses,
0: um, you know, various sex offenses. Well, we even have a candidate for Senate uh, in Pennsylvania who just recently uh, said that if he's elected, he'd like to release all of the uh, those who were convicted of second-degree murder.
1: extraordinary.
0: Well, it is. Uh, It is. But, you know, coming from a guy who continually appears before the public in his campaigns with a hoodie, uh, it's beginning to communicate an attitude uh, that is not interested in justice or even in order.
1: Yeah, I'm not familiar with that particular uh, Senate race, but... uh... You know i am familiar with the burden placed upon the criminal justice system yeah and law enforcement in particular you know when they're also having to be subjected to such profound criticism some of which is earned and much of which is not and you know the people who from day to day are charged with keeping us safe and maintaining some order in our society uh you know increasingly people of goodwill don't want to do it because they don't want to be subject to that kind of criticism and vitriol yeah and so this is this is what happens when a society turns away from its god and then increasingly searches for other ways to maintain moral order and it all gets cast upon the criminal justice system whether it be law enforcement or the system that is charged with uh discerning what's fair what's just what's right and what the sentences might be and oh by the way is the person really guilty mm-hmm. So the other thing that we've had and you know is some you know, three, four hundred convictions for life sentences are more reversed, you know, predominantly because of DNA evidence yeah. proving someone is innocent. And we had just one today, you know, the conviction reversed where someone had done twenty two years on a wow. alleged murder.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: so, you know, that part of what happens is is that you know, anger becomes part of the uh, culture as more crimes are committed, and increasingly, we seek to blame somebody to find someone. And yeah, law enforcement.
0: You well, know, even even the D.A., even the D.A., the prosecutors are very eager because they have political uh, agendas. Uh, they have uh, they want to get uh, upped in the ranks, so to speak. And so they're out to get a conviction, and they're out to do it by whatever means they can accomplish it. Uh, and, and I think those kinds of things are not fully understood uh, by the public.
1: Yeah, I think that is, is very true. Um, you know, they do have the opportunity to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to file a case. Mm-hmm. But once they've made the decision to file charges, then it becomes the statistic in the office, and when they run for re-election, because they're all politicians and they have to be <laughs> reelected, they run on the basis of I convicted ninety-two percent of the people I prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And, you know those statistics are very, very important. So, and then when you have deputy DAs who wind up having to dismiss cases or lose cases, this is this hurts their career. Yeah, because you know. You're not supposed to lose. You're not supposed to make mistakes. You're not supposed to embarrass the office. You're hurting our statistics, you
2: know. So the
0: reality is what what you're actually saying is that the justice system is made up of human beings who are sinners, many of whom are unbelievers, who have never been convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit in their life. And so this is a cross-section whether it's a prosecutorial situation, whether it's a public defender, uh, the same is true in the in the uh, civil uh, area. The same is true, by the way, in the pulpits of America. Same issue, same problems because of sinful men. And so how do you obtain justice in the midst of that kind of environment?
1: Well you know my preferred methodology is to do everything I possibly can as a lawyer and I I believe in the system and that is is that you know it's an adversarial system and one thing we have done in this nation is we've done two you know just tremendous things in our criminal justice and in most of our civil cases and that is is that You know, we have competing lawyers, we have an adversarial system, but the Mm -hmm. other thing that is really extraordinary is is that we have jurors of 12 people, and the choice of 12 people is no coincidence. And in a criminal case, you need, you know, unanimous verdict to find someone guilty. And I'll tell you what, in my experience doing some 100, 100 jury trials, Those 12 people that really are randomly selected from the community, I have nothing but trust and respect for them. And I can tell you that of all those jury trials I did, I may not have liked the results initially, but upon reflection, I can't say I disagreed with any
0: of them. Mm. So the jury becomes like a check and balance against uh, both the prosecution and the uh, the defense, uh, whether in a criminal case or even in a civil case. So you again, you have this series of checks and balances uh, with the effort to obtain justice as best as possible among sinful men.
1: Yeah, and, you know, people who are impartial, and they're the people you know in your community that serve as jurors, What you find out is there's, an enormous amount of goodwill and common decency still amongst the people and that's that's really what holds it together because you know in so many other societies and systems you know the judges decide guilt or innocence and they're political appointees and so you know they used to be prosecutors they are appointed by the governor or the president and And so when the government is asking for something, they're very, very reluctant to say, oh, no, you're wrong.
0: So politics is involved to twist the mind and the heart of judges as well. So uh, that being said, we've laid a foundation for so much that people are interested in uh, in the secular realm with regard to this matter of justice or the lack thereof. But you focused your book on something very different. You focused your book on those who were somewhat, you might say, almost the outcasts or the ones who were the least deserving of any kind of mercy, of any kind of justice, the way we see it, and yet you devoted your life to help them. Help us understand that. Give give us a thumbnail sketch
1: well the you know the bottom line is is the defense lawyer, which you're doing the vast majority of the time, is you're seeking to mitigate very harsh potential sentences All right. so you're you're not in there trying to say you're wrong and he's innocent you're trying to say, okay, yes, he did this crime, but. however, mm-hmm. here is the best and most appropriate sentence under the circumstances.
2: So,
0: for the purpose of the listeners now, they should understand that you shifted your focus uh, and your practice from being a prosecutor to being a defense lawyer. We'll get back to that after this break, friends. The book Eternal Justice $16 to we'll put it in your hands. I think you're going to find it fascinating. We're talking with Philip Remington Dunn. The book is on our website, saveus.org.
2: Prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org.
0: Our guest today, Philip Dunn. 37 years as a trial attorney, all almost all in the criminal field there in Ventura, California, uh, the coast, central coast of California, a beautiful place. And uh, he's joining us here with his book, Eternal Justice how God intervenes for the least of us. Now, the interesting thing, uh, Philip, as I think about how most people just naturally and reflectively think of justice, particularly if they think they've been wrong. Justice then becomes almost a form of retribution, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and that's been the criminal justice system for mm-hmm. as long as I've been practicing law. So there have been... Many things that have happened in this nation, uh, predominantly the proliferation of criminal street gangs upon which people are very angry. And, you know, the violence and the drug abuse and, you know, the just staggering numbers of members in criminal gangs, you know, what we see the signs of it everywhere with graffiti and everything. And so we went through a long period of just being angry Mm -hmm. and sending young men to prison for, you know, decades uh, for various being a part of a gang, participating in a crime with a gang. And so what we did is you may take an 18 year old and send him to prison for seven or eight years and you send him in there with all the other gang members and they're just a kid. And they become serious, hardcore gang members in prison gangs, and you know these prison gangs are throughout the United States now. You know there's the Nazi Lowriders and the Aryan Brotherhood and the Black Gorilla Family.
0: Well, you can't you can't mafia. blame them because fatherlessness has become the number one. Uh... Both in Christian and secular observers say it's the number one social problem of the time, and that almost all the other statistics flow from fatherlessness. So, what these guys so the are looking
1: for—fatherless—is they're in prison; their father's in prison. Yeah, you know. So, we're talking two or three, you know, generations now of this. That's one of the reasons. Yes, okay? there's plenty of others. You know, they were never yeah. married to begin with, and you know, and they so it's a plague
0: them. upon it's a curse upon our society. And uh, that's the situation we're in. Now you're saying, okay, there may be those within the system, there may be those who seem to be the most uh, undeserving of all that God would reach by his spirit to restore and bring mercy for their lives. Give
2: us an illustration. Yeah, so
1: that's the story of my career is alternative sentencing in Christian rehabilitation homes. And So instead of sending someone to prison or jail for a year or five or whatever it may be, you send them to uh, the re- Christian rehabilitation home and Victory Outreach or, uh, you know, so many other small ministries or big Awana lifeline and, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the nation. Uh where they actually receive moral training for the first time in their life and they spend, you know, hours studying the Bible and you know, they're removed from the environment and the drugs that they were on and you leave them there for a year, court ordered, and my experience is 70-80% of them make a complete transformation. So I have unlimited Numbers of stories of clients I've represented who, you know, were given that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, they're very close friends of mine. Some are like my children.
0: Well, so you've actually followed through with them. Uh, You didn't just do your job as a lawyer, but you became a human being that continued to connect with them.
1: Well, I go to church with them, you know, and they, I go to, you know, the Victory Outreach of Ventura County or, you know, people don't know about this ministry very much, but it's there's 600 churches across the entire world now, mm-hmm. and it was started by a heroin addict, Sonny Argonzoni, who was uh, brought to Jesus by David Wilkerson, the yeah. author of The Cross and the Switchblade. Mm-hmm. So, the you know, the, the movement, the restored church, is very, very powerful out there, and it's moving in places like... Uh, the urban centers, uh, in gang-infested neighborhoods, and in prisons. I've been in over 23 prisons in California doing a, a program called the Urban Ministry Institute.
0: Of course, that was voluntarily rather than under court mandate, right?
1: You mean in prison? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> has to be brought in. This has to be brought in by prison fellowships. So Chuck Colson was a friend of mine. Uh One of the last things we did with prison fellowship was bring this program into the prisons and they'd study for three and a half years to get the equivalent of a master's degree in theology and we track the recidivism rates of those who just just participated in the program and the recidivism rate was 6% for over 300 that we had parole out.
2: That's amazing.
1: 60%, but it's the truth. Okay. You know, as a lawyer, you'll really you would totally appreciate this. We have to prove our case, so that's right. what the book's about. And that's you know, those are all examples mm-hmm. in the in the book of you know various times in which you know this isn't just goodwill and good people. This is the intervention of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, and you know,
0: but it requires you know, human beings. Who themselves are moved by the Holy Spirit to touch to their participate.
1: lives. participate, yes. Yeah. That is really what, you know, is, is what it's all about, is the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are there to back you up and intervene at critical moments, but you have to decide you want to serve in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then, in that moment in which you've gone that far, and you've done this thing, and usually in the most critical of moments, then that's when the Holy Spirit shows up and the manifestation of the supernatural power of God comes into people's lives or into their hearts, which changes everything.
0: But it seems like that would be impossible with some of these hardcore folk. Uh, I mean, you even describe some of them, this fellow Santana, uh, in your book. Uh, You call it Santana's last stand, he was uh i mean you would never believe that he was redeemable at
2: all
1: no you, you wouldn't i mean he beat people to death you know he was one of as we say an original gangster you know one of the first to form prison gangs in prison and it was only when he cried out to god when he was going back to prison again to relieve him from withdrawal from heroin that He woke up the next day and had no withdrawal symptoms. Amazing that he believed that yes, there was a God, and then you know what happened in his life after that is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah, to receive the type of forgiveness that he did from the wife and the daughter of the man he murdered at on the day of her wedding. Wow! You know he beat the father to death, and then. You know, after he got out of prison seven or eight years later, he's in a Christian rehabilitation home, and they go to somebody's house, this magnificent feast, and he looks up and recognizes finally that the woman and the daughter of the man he beat to death on the daughter's wedding day are the ones who are making this dinner. And he just sort of crawls his way over to her with tears in his eyes and says, tries to say something, and she reaches down and touches his head and says, Santana, Santana, don't you know that we forgave you long ago? Wow. And then I went, you know, with him to where she was in, you know, an old folks' home, and I wanted to, you know, I do you believe that story? You know, being a lawyer, I had to go prove it to myself, so I met her. <laughs> And I, you know, saw her hold his hand and say, Miho, and I asked her about it, and she said, you know, Santana was a bad boy for a long time, and that's all I have to say.
0: Mm. What and a...
1: holding his hand,
0: you it, know. It's a wonderful I, picture uh, of redemption and of mercy. Yes. Revealed Forget in that. forgiveness. The you eternal know, the power justice.
1: the supernatural power of forgiveness, and he went on to be a great preacher, bringing how many souls in who mm. from the streets because he had so much respect on the streets uh-huh you know? and so I've seen countless guys like this, you know and just recently you know a guy who was founding member of the Mexican mafia here in California you know, he dropped out and they gave him a pass, you know, a bye because he professed that he was a true Christian. Mm. And they tested him in this. Wow! And when he, you know, made it clear that he would not fight back, that he would not, you know, be a part of any of that anymore, they let him go because there is even amongst the most, you know, brutal of gangsters, certain ethics. And one of which is every man has a right to save his own soul Hmm. so if you are (coughs) sincere in your dedication to jesus christ then they'll give you a pass and let you
0: out wow well god gives us a pass too uh not because we deserve it but because he is faithful and just the bible says if we will confess our sin He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And uh, the reality is that we are all sinners, and all are under a death penalty. The Bible said the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're all under a death penalty. And uh, that's why uh, the salvation that Christ offers is so amazing. That's why we sing the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It's a pretty sweet sound when you realize you were under a death penalty. The problem is, uh, Philip, that uh, we haven't been preaching sin much for the past 40 years. And so people don't have the sense of uh, the true amazing grace because they don't realize they were under a death penalty. Uh, the book, friends, eternal justice: How God intervenes for the least of us. $16 will bring this encouraging book for you.
2: Go to our website, saveus.org. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click sell church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click sell church.
0: So glad that you've joined us here on Viewpoint today in our conversation with Philip Dunn, a veteran attorney there in California who uh, began his career actually as a prosecute as a prosecutor and now for many years has actually found himself on the other side of the legal system in the criminal justice system defending others how in the world do you do that how did you do that phil
1: Well, actually, I wanted to be a prosecutor, but I never got to be because, uh, you know, the Lord answered my prayers Uh much better than I knew myself. (laughs) And that was that um, I got a job as a public defender instead of a district Okay, so you
0: didn't want, you you thought you wanted to be a persecutor, I mean, prosecutor, (laughs) but... (laughs) That's okay with me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because that's, isn't that in a sense what a, a prosecutor is? A legal persecutor?
1: Well, that's, you know, I have so many friends now that are prosecutors that are deputy district attorneys. Yeah, You know, that was a, a little humor there for yeah, me. Yeah, I know. But, um, you know, that are they're really fine people. You know, the district attorney now in Ventura County is a, a really fine man, Christian man, and he's a great friend of mine. So, yeah. you know, what we find out is, you know, over time is, is that, you know we all kind of got into this for the same reason and that is, is to do justice that we mm. cared about that yeah. and we find out that uh those of us of goodwill of you know that have similar values and morality you know we can work these things out together and that's that's why the system works as well as it does now yeah but also you know that there are ways to redeem people right instead of just putting them in prison like animals in a cage, you know, here in California, we had 260,000 people in prison, two to a cell stacked 20 feet, 20 stories high and 20 cells long, you know, and they're wow. screaming all night. And then, you know, one day they get released and they get $200 and a bus ticket back to the county where they came from, and, you know, and then, gee, what a shock. 60, 65 percent of them reoffend and go back to prison. I mean, what a broken system.
0: Yeah. Okay, so one of
1: the main reasons for that (laughs) is is the you know, the removal of moral training within the prison system. You know, because somehow the basis for that is Christianity Mm -hmm. and therefore we can't do that.
0: Okay. Well it's like it's like the famous
1: constitution. Well, that's we know that's just absurd. So but there are those of us as individuals who do that and the you know prison fellowship and I want a lifeline and a lot of other ministries. the mm-hmm. Catholics are very you know, good at going into prison and I can tell you this you know there are, per capita there are more Christians in prison than there are on the streets of Ventura you know that you know the, the the darkest, most difficult and uh, poorest places and neighborhoods, is where the gospel resonates, and that's where people are turning to Jesus Christ.
0: What a beautiful picture. So what's the difference between justice and mercy? The Scripture says, What does the Lord desire of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly? So if you're trying to do justly from the society's perspective, that kind of mitigates against the concept of mercy, doesn't it? At least for a prosecutor.
1: No, it really doesn't because, you know, what justice and, you know, what that um, scripture from Micah tells us is that, you know, first of all, justice requires conviction. In other words, a recognition of the wrong.
0: Mm -hmm. That's why we have to confess that's why right. we must that's why confess you have to plead our sins.
1: you guilty, right? Exactly. You know, in court. You know, we can, and if you're willing to do that, then we can talk about mercy. hmm But if you just want to, you know, say, you know, I'll do my time sitting on my head, and you can try and convict me whatever way you can and fight and deny, and, you know, that's the life you've chosen, then, yeah, you can do that, and then those people are treated most harshly. But once there's a recognition of what it is, that the wrong that was done to society or to an individual, the crime, and there's a conviction, then there's a sentence. And what matters with a sentence is, yeah, there's got to be some corrective or maybe even punitive portion of it. But isn't what we want is to change the basic morality of this individual so they don't do something like this again?
0: Yeah. Well, if they don't get that kind of moral training in the home, which is not likely since uh, uh, fatherlessness is such an overwhelming picture, particularly among those who are in prison uh, and the, the children of them, so they they're not getting any kind of uh, leadership so what do you expect uh then it's uh, ref- they they don't allow it in the prison either so you're basically just uh caging someone to release them into an ever more wild and corrupt and uh, chaotic world
1: yeah someone who's angry who's been abused in prison who's been trained to be a gangster so that's what's happened that's why there's gangs in every little city and town throughout the united states because they go in and they're not gangsters but when they get out they're well trained in gangsterism and so they go back and they you know take the young boys who are fatherless in their neighborhood and they implement what's called gangster uh, gangster insurance and that's You know, you can either get jumped in or jumped on. Wow. And once you're in, you don't get jumped on anymore. So you want gangster health insurance. And that's how gangs are formed throughout, you know, the United States. There's estimates are that there are a million registered gang members
0: in this country. Wow. Now, how does your wife, uh, you've been married for, what, 47 years? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Forty-two. 40 or forty two how does your wife uh react to your uh, involvement with this element of society uh, over the years?
1: Well she was always happy that I was a, a public defender and and really you know was a person who is very active on um, Within the church, and mm-hmm. I was a school teacher and an administrator, and so really I had a great understanding of. Wait
0: a minute! You and I have an awful lot in common. <laughs> I taught school for nine years in Southern California before I began practicing law. Oh wow! Yeah,
1: you've had quite a career. Well, so you can see by being a you know a teacher and what even then was going on and what's been oh, going yeah. on. And, you know, you're taking out moral training out of the schools, too,
0: right? You know, Mm -hmm. let's talk about let's talk quickly about forgiveness. Uh, Jesus said, if you will not forgive others, their trespasses against you, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. Uh, That's a pretty strong statement, but most people don't really believe it. They believe they're going to get a pass on that. Um, So this is a tall order. When someone has committed a crime, particularly when they've committed a heinous crime against you, uh, whether it's a monstrous theft or whether it's a killing or a maiming or whatever, um, this matter of forgiveness is monumental, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, and it's, it's, it's unfair to necessarily, in the short term, put that upon the victim of a crime. However, in those occasions in which we've seen that expression of forgiveness by a victim at somebody's sentencing, I mean, there's not a dry eye in the place to judge everyone, you know? It's just the supernatural implementation of Jesus' command There is overtakes everyone, and It doesn't mean that there isn't a sentence and that there isn't justice done, Mm -hmm. but it does mean that there is hope for everyone to be redeemed
0: from this evil. Well, C.S. Lewis made a statement, and you have it right there in the end of the book. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Yeah. That's a powerful statement.
1: Isn't it? You know?
0: And it just doesn't apply in criminal cases. It applies in, say, marriage cases. It applies in areas where a child has been abused. It applies in so many, many different areas, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and uh, uh, everything involving human nature and people and sin, you know, and the evil of it. And how do we how do we overcome it? Well, we overcome it with love, and the purest expression of that love is forgiveness.
0: If we, if, if we want the Lord to forgive us, we have to be willing to forgive, and that requires a humility of heart. No wonder uh, Micah says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly, Wow. I'm thinking about uh, a fellow by the name of Edmund Burke. There in not so jolly old England. Actually, he was not talking about what we're talking about here in particular. But he said, uh, I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I should do. And by the grace of God, I will do. I think that's what you've been doing, but there are a lot of people out there who are not in the same kind of circumstances. They're not uh, uh, in the legal system. Uh, can they also be involved in uh, intervening in people's lives that are on the edge of destruction like this?
1: Oh yeah, I mean that. And how there's, there's churches all over. Well, one way is go to prison and visit the prisoner, as as Jesus commanded. Did you come to see me when I was in prison? That is one of the things, you know, if you want to be one of the sheep of Jesus, that's what you do. Or, you know, did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you visit me when I was sick? Did you give me clothes when I was naked? Did you visit me in prison? Mm. So... You know, there's all kinds of people who do that, and it's scary, you know, particularly in the beginning, but you find out it's really, they're the most appreciative people you could ever imagine that you've come to see them. And, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities in the cities amongst, you know, the young people who have no parents, who, through churches and, you know, with all of the various ministries that go on in the inner city, to get involved and, you know, mentor a child, to, you know, be that parental uh, figure in every county there is in the nation. There's some sort of CASA organization, which is for, you know, children who have no parents who are in foster care, and Mm -hmm. you assume that role, and that, these are the things that we're called to. the church in, in America is that it no longer is concerned just, you know, with the politicization of the church, with the uh, commercialization of the church, or mm-hmm. the liberalization of the church. It's concerned with the flock that is within all of our reach yep. who need the redeeming, restoring power of Jesus Christ
0: alive. Well, thank you so much, Philip, for joining us here on the program today. We wanted to bring a message of hope amid all of the despair and the destruction that's going on out there. The book, Eternal Justice, How God Intervenes for the Least of Us, $16 on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries, PO Box 7, 0879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check. At $5 for postage and handling, become a partner, friends. We're confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from a eternal perspective. 27 and a half years here, live every day. God bless You've been and be a blessing. listening blessed. to
2: Viewpoint with Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts
0: of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.